Do you ever want to be a guest on a super cool podcast hosted by a glamorous power couple from their cutting-edge home studio on the outskirts of a major metropolitan world hub? Hollywood, anyone? Us, too. Until then, let's pretend. One of these days, you might get a DM, a PM, an EM, or even a message in a bottle inviting you to join my husband and I for an hour or two in our chat lab, working on solutions for all the world's problems. And when you are invited, there's only one response. Yeah, uh-huh. Here is CBS News correspondent Walter Cronkite. November 22nd, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was shot to death in full view of hundreds of spectators watching him in a Dallas, Texas motorcade. Forty-eight hours later, the man Dallas police said shot the president, Lee Harvey Oswald, was himself killed by Jack Ruby in full view of millions of Americans watching television. This bizarre sequence of double killings raised great questions. Who actually fired the shots that killed Kennedy? Why did Ruby shoot Oswald? Was there a conspiracy? Were right-wingers involved? Was it a Russian plot, a Cuban plot? The new president, Lyndon Johnson, ordered these questions answered. He appointed a commission of seven prominent Americans to investigate the whole affair. He literally drafted Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren as chairman. This committee labored ten months, took testimony from hundreds of witnesses, then brought forth a document close to a thousand pages. The report is signed by Earl Warren, Chief Justice of the United States. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Yeah, Aha uh-huh with Lisa and Phil. This week, we are again talking about JFK, a favorite subject of someone, if you can guess who. <laughs> and we're talking with J.C. Townsend. Summer's almost gone. Uh-huh. Armchair detective extraordinaire. Welcome, J.T. Uh-huh. Well, welcome, Phil. And is it Lisa? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes, yes. I'm uh, always happy to be out. Always happy to be on here with you guys. Rolling up on the anniversary, 58th of the JFK assassination. Right. And this is the third part. We've done three podcasts about JFK. We we had a couple of authors. We read a book called The The Lone Star Speaks, Katana Zachary and Sarah Peterson. And they kind of dove into some of the you know, more fantastical details of the assassination. Some of the more they interviewed people that were actually not even some of them were not interviewed at all yeah. at the time of the Warren Commission. And some of them were interviewed, but the interviews were not they were kept, but they were not valued. Yeah. Hmm. They were not listened to. And then we moved on to an episode with our one of our favorite journalists, Will Cooper, where we discussed JFK's administration and the highlights of his term in office. It was unfortunately cut short. And now we have our favorite armchair detective back to give us the final word on JFK as we close in on the 22nd. Well, this will be the final word. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're talking about the world, the the Warren Commission, predominantly. Louis Stephen Witt. Well, let's talk about Louis. I want to talk a little bit about Louis Stephen Witt, and only Mm -hmm. because the Umbrella Man 
was is a major part of the lore that surrounds all of this. And I always thought it was, I thought it was interesting when I found out researching this podcast that uh, he actually went before Congress in 1978 to account for why he was holding an umbrella that uh, sunny day in Dallas. And he came up, I don't know if he came up with a story, but I thought his story was kind of interesting and in that he was actually protesting Joe Kennedy's neutrality in World War II, which was some yep. 20 years earlier. That, that, that is what he did say. A lot of people came forward for that House uh, Senate Committee on Assassinations in 1978 that that didn't testify before the Warren uh, Commission in, in 64, mm-hmm. mostly because they didn't come forward in 1964 to do so. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of people come forward in 1978 with fantastically weird conspiracy stories that they'd been sitting on for 14 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tend to I tend to go with the people that gave testimony, you know, within a short period of time after the event and not 14 years later. Right. Just a thought there. Yeah, you have all that time to kind of ruminate on things and your mind starts to... (laughs) Here's my thing. My thing with that is investigation. The investigation, the original investigation should have found these people. They shouldn't, you, you know, I mean, a lot of them, now you're saying they came forward, which means... They were never approached previously. Well, a lot of the Dealey Plaza witnesses obviously were interviewed within a half hour of the assassination. And, and they had obviously names and contact mm-hmm. information for these people. Right. Um, I mean, the Warren Commission was able to actually contact 552 witnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a lot. And yeah. everybody that was near this crime scene typically gave testimony. I know it's 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 very popular to bash the Warren Commission. I've never seen a more thorough murder investigation in my life. Yeah, uh, five hundred fifty-two witnesses, thirty-one hundred exhibits. That that Warren Commission report. Wow, you know that's the weightlifter version. This was mm-hmm. very thorough and exhaustive. And mm-hmm. uh, JFK did tell them he wanted it out of the way before the election. Some people will say. Why did it take them eight months to come up with this? I look at that report and go, how did they do this in eight months? Right. Yeah, what an output of information. Right. And, of course, Vince Bugliosi's seminal book, Reclaiming History, which is hands down the best book on the assassination, really Mm -hmm. dissects all the Warren Commission testimony to quite some degree. And... Mm -hmm. You know, kids, I was a former conspiracy person. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll admit it. But eventually you realize all these little loose ends and these little annoying details, they don't go anywhere. Mm. And every case I've ever studied has loose ends. Yeah. But yeah. they have to go somewhere and link to something. So that's my initial thought. How do you want to proceed on this today? Well, let me ask you real quick. You, you mentioned that you used, you know, used to buy into a conspiracy Big time, uh, but it was was the Oliver Stone film any kind of catalyst that turned you uh, away from that position, uh, or was it your independent research? But the, re- the reason I'm wondering about that is because they kind of just threw everything against the wall. Oliver Stone just kind of threw everything against the wall. It seemed 
to see what would stick. And I think that a lot of people emerged from that with kind of a, a fatigue over the conspiracies. You know, Phil, Phil, that is an excellent question. That indeed was probably the turning point for me. It was a fascinating film to watch, but it, it's a work of fiction. Mm-hmm. It's basically fictional. And I thought it was interesting that JFK Jr. interviewed Oliver Stone for his magazine. And he JFK Jr. walked down on the interview and said, I can't talk to this guy anymore. You know, I, as you said, Phil, they threw everything up against mm-hmm. the wall in that movie right. to see if it stuck. And, and I think that's what got it started for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you read Posner's book, Case Closed, and then Bugliosi's book, I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really, it was a simple murder case all along, really. And I, everybody's buried it under this assassination mystique. You know, only a plot of intricate kind of epic intricacy could bring down a sovereign like JFK, right? You're telling me some pathetic Weasley loser with a $12 mail order rifle did this on his own? I mean, come on. It doesn't, the scales don't balance. Right. Yeah. Just, and that that is the birth of the conspiracy movement. Uh, Phil, I think you mentioned Mark Lane's book, definitely the first conspiracy book of some note. Right. And I read it at the time, and then I read it again, and it kind of infuriated me. Firing Line with William F. Buckley, Jr. Tonight's guest, Mark Lane. Our topic, the Warren Report. Fact or fiction, Mr. Buckley? I'd like to begin by asking Mr. Lane this. It is widely alleged that sinister forces who have a vested interest in suppressing the real truth as to the identity of the assassin, have been here and there killing off crucial people, former strippers at Ruby's Joint in Dallas, our truck driver roommates of friends of Oswald, that kind of thing. How come if you were the man who has changed history, these forces haven't bumped you off, Mr. Lane? Well, I think, fortunately, uh, we haven't come to that. I would like to comment, if I may, upon... uh portions of your introduction, uh, it is not just liberals and leftists who cannot accept the Warren Commission report. Of course, I think the very best review and most favorable review, which my book received, was in your publication, the National Review. I was talking about your uh, pre-Kennedy reputation, by way of background. Before the assassination. Yes, sir. When I was elected to the state legislature. There was an assassination, wasn't there? Yes, when I was elected, there's no question about that. When I was elected to the state legislature with the endorsement and support of President Kennedy, that's the left liberal uh, uh, approach you're talking about. In terms of the assassination, though, in terms of the Warren report, of course, the Lou Harris poll shows now that two-thirds of the American people indicate that they cannot accept its conclusions. So I think that it's not even an, uh, an unpopular cause with which I'm associated any longer. Any evidence, po- any evidence in Lane's book pointing to Oswald and Ruby acting alone it wasn't in the book. He just ignored it. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you have eight people say Oswald either shot J.D. Tippett, the police officer, or they saw him f- fled the scene. Mm-hmm. And all Mark Lane said was two of the witnesses disagreed on the color of his jacket. Mm-hmm. All he said about that. He said nothing more than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you just avoid those unpleasant truths when you're trying to engage in confirmation bias, as you guys well know. 
Mm-hmm. You, know, you really pick your evidence to support your theory. Right. Well, I found that you mentioned Mark Lane. I saw an appearance of his with William F. Buckley that I only listened to a portion of it before you know, getting ready for this podcast, but I plan to go back to that just to see where Buckley stood, you know, on the position because he was such a. polarizing. uh, uh, You know, that's a, I wonder where he did stand. I mean, he had those epic debates in 1968 with Gore Vidal during the presidential uh, convention. I mean, we watched, I was a kid, I was like 14. Everybody tuned in for that. You have this brilliant liberal Vidal against this brilliant conservative Buckley. Holy moly, was that good TV? Yeah, oh, those <laughs> they were guys, both such characters, you know, those guys got a little nasty with each other too. So uh, <laughs> that's okay. You know, I, imagine, I imagine Buckley would would toe the line and say the Warren Commission was correct. Anything you'd like to say? Yes, my, my point, Mister Scott, oh. is that it was the work of a madman. Yes, uh, and uh, I took a, took this position from the moment the assassination. Uh, was uh, was was talked about uh, that it was so crazy an act, so wretched and sinister uh, an act uh, that it was simply unlikely that it was the 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 natural workings of a tight coordinated ideological system uh, that it was much much rather and much more probably the workings of somebody who's individually impelled to act. Mm. Right. Yeah. I think I found his Lane's book among the refuse of my siblings when they left and I picked it up and started reading it. And so that was probably where the birth of my interest in, if not, and it was, if not, if not uh, in the in search of show, of course, which we talked about before, there was a good segment on that. Is Leonard Nimoy still on that show or did he run out of things to look for? He passed away. <laughs> yeah, he passed away. That, I know he did. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, that's terrible. <laughs> But, no, no, it's it's funny. Yeah. But, well, um, um, uh, I see you guys saw the assassins at CCM, the story of Charles Guiteau. Right. Yeah. Boy, what a weird guy he was. Mm. Right, right. And people should take a look at the article you wrote on the topic last year that's published on your site. Absolutely. Um, it mentions Guto and it mentions Squeaky From and some other assassins. I, I listed every presidential assassin or attempted assassin at the beginning of that article. Mm-hmm. And, and the one guy stands out, and that is John Wilkes Booth. What an alpha male assassin. Mm-hmm. The rest of these guys were just pitiful, uh, washed out, pathetic losers. Every yeah. single one of them. And isn't it amazing that no one's ever claimed there were conspiracies with, with John Hinckley or Guiteau or Squeaky Fromm? No one's ever gone this conspiracy round. Mm-hmm. I think that's because in most of those cases, those attempts were unsuccessful. Yeah. The successful, well, yeah. The successful attempts, uh, we've got Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth. That's an actual conspiracy. Guiteau was, was, was just, he was a nut job. Leon Cholgas, who shot McKinley, he was just an idiot. And Lee Harvey Oswald, just a failure. Nobody who wanted to be somebody. And that's what assassins are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, he, yeah, you're, you're, you're saying that Oswald probably had more in common with someone like Hinckley or Lost Soul. You know, there's kind of a drift. Absolutely. Guiteau. 
Cholgosh, Squeaky uh, Frome. Uh, these people are so anemic failures and they can't stand to not be noticed. They want their spot in history. Every assassin I've ever studied fits this profile, except the guy who allegedly killed Huey Long. And he was a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but even John Wilkes Booth, for all his grandeur, was very overrated as an actor. And mm-hmm. he was cowardly to fight for the South in the Civil War. But But at least... John Wilkes Booth was an alpha male assassin. He stands far apart of all these other cast of cartoon assassins that we see that have taken shots at presidents. Right. They're just all losers. Nobody would hire these people to do anything, much less kill a president. Mm-hmm. So the notion that because Oswald was a marksman and he had a political ambition and he was a world traveler and he had a Russian wife, all these things that people tend to point to as being a condition of his involvement with a larger entity. They kind of paled by comparison to some of the, uh, the these elements you're talking about and the fact that, you know, he was kind of a ne'er-do-well. You know, he was, he was five different schools in six years. His mother was just uh, crazy, a chronic truant, chronic troublemaker, Went into the military, shot himself on purpose, some people said, to get out of a duty. And then he does something, Phil and Lisa, I mean, who does this? People in Russia flee to the United States. You don't defect from the United States to Russia. Mm -hmm. Who does that? In 1960. Like a mail order bride situation, though? No, it was not. He did not be Marine until he was there. He went there and the Russians didn't trust him. They gave him a menial job and he only stayed um, two and a half years. And he came, he came running back here as fast as he could. And, And this tells you something. The night that Oswald arrived back in the United States in 1962, he had asked his family to alert the media that he was returning. No, (laughs) no one showed up. Did they even bother? No one showed up. He was very hurt by that. And about a year later, he shoots Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody who would defect to Russia back then. Oh, my Lord. I mean, you got you have to be a little bit unhinged. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and if I may segue, it's the part of Oswald's resume that no one remembers. He took a shot at right wing general Edwin Walker on April 11th, 1963. He absolutely did this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but there was no prosecution on that. No prosecution whatsoever. He had told his wife that he was stalking Walker. He had a manifesto that they found. He had photographs of Walker's house from all angles. He had the route mapped out. Uh, he took a bus or no, excuse me. Yeah, I think he did take a bus. I'm trying to remember how he got the gun there. But he squeezed off a shot and Walker's doing his taxes in his kitchen. It hits a window frame and goes through the guy's hair. It doesn't barely even grazes him. Oswald runs out of there, buries the rifle somewhere. So he doesn't, so he's not caught with it that night. Comes home and tells Marina by her testimony, I shot Walker. Mm-hmm. And indeed, he took a shot. The bullet was recovered. And after the assassination, it was indeed matched to Oswald's Manlicher Carcano. 
So Lee Harvey Oswald is telling you right then, it's months and months before he shoots Kennedy. I am an assassin. I fit the profile. This is what I'm going to do. So he definitely yeah. has a, a, a violent streak. Yes. Right. Uh, why does Why does no one uh, no Why doesn't anyone remember that he took that shot at Walker? Okay. Because of the Kennedy situation, that's why. Because Kennedy is so big, and Walker just, you know. But here's the thing: they knew he did it, but he didn't get prosecuted. He didn't go to jail. Nope. Now, playing devil's advocate here, I would think that maybe there's a reason why that they wanted to use him as a scapegoat for something bigger. Oswald? Yes. I don't think they, in, in the Walker investigation, uh-huh. nothing to connect Oswald to Walker. I mean, there were okay. really was nothing. He went home, went back the next day and dug up his rifle, went home. Marina was well aware, but he just went on about his business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no, they were never able to uh, connect that to him until after. Okay. Oh, okay. After the assassination, Marina showed them the Walker manifesto and they tested the rifle. Mm-hmm. So no, I don't think there was any any kind of collusion and they're going, oh, this guy took a shot at Walker, but let's let him let's let him dangle for a while and see what he does next. No, yeah. nothing like that. Because I can definitely the the government that that I see in foreign countries and other lands could definitely do that. What about Walker? I mean, so Walker must have been a high profile target because Oswald was a, he was a, a whore for the camera. He wanted to be famous. He he was, you know, he absolutely nobody who wanted to be somebody. He wanted to do something really incredible like that. Uh, Walker was a real right wing kind of George Wallace kind of guy. And Mm -hmm. Oswald's, Certainly, probably uh, a socialist, if not a communist. No, sir, I am not a communist, and uh, I think that the uh, the uh, red herring and so forth is rather uh, uh, ridiculous to toss into this conversation. And are you a Marxist? Well, I have uh, studied Marxist philosophy, yes, sir, and also other philosophers. But are you a Marxist? I think you did admit on an earlier radio interview that you uh, that you consider yourself a Marxist. Well, I would very definitely say that I uh, I uh, am a Marxist. That is correct. But I, that does not mean, however, that I'm a, a uh, communist. What is the difference between the two? Well, there's a great deal of difference. That several uh, American parties in several countries are based on Marxism, such as Ghana. Uh, Ghana. Uh, certain countries have uh, characteristics uh, of a socialist system, such as Great Britain with its uh, socialized medicine. Uh, these, then, are the differences between an outright communist country and countries which adhere to leftist or Marxist uh, uh, principles. In your work with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, uh, what are you advocating? We advocate restoration of diplomatic trade and tourist relations with Cuba. He's more of a leftist. You know, if, if, he's, a, if he's an anarchist, then Walker's a vigilante kind of thing. And that was, he's definitely had some natural hatred for Walker. I don't think he had any enmity toward JFK whatsoever mm. at all. Why don't, we, why don't we move to another fascinating fact here that no okay. one seems to know. You know how Oswald got that job at the book depository? Well, his wife moved out. Marina moved out and moved to the suburbs and lived with the Payne family. And a neighbor of theirs worked at the depository and, and told Marina there were, they were hiring and Lee Oswald got the job. 
And they almost mm-hmm. sent they almost sent him to work at their other building. Only on a last minute whim did they keep him at the Texas School Book Depository. Mm-hmm. So it's a total fluke that he's even working there. Right. If Marina doesn't go to live out in the suburbs with the Payne family, then that neighbor is not, she's not there for that neighbor to tell her about that job. And everybody thinks there's so mm-hmm. something so nefarious about how he ended up working there. Not at all. Not so, at all. And you see this time and time again with JFK. There are simple explanations mm-hmm. for everything. But but let's consider this, you two. Mm-hmm. That motorcade route. I mean, everybody knew Kennedy was coming to Dallas maybe a, maybe a month before. Mm-hmm. Motorcade route was not finalized till Tuesday, November 19th. Oswald, who always read the next, the, the previous day's newspaper in the lunchroom because it was too cheap to buy one, mm-hmm. he would have found out about the motorcade route on Wednesday, November 20th. Mm-hmm. Can you guys imagine this this bitter, alienated assassin reads this and learns the most powerful man on the planet is going to be riding right below his window on Friday? Mm-hmm. So, Lisa, can you believe this? His head must have about exploded. Yeah. So it's like the crime it's, of opportunity. It's basically. Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, Oswald does not drive. He has no phone. He goes home to his rooming house Wednesday night. His landlady said he stayed in, made no phone calls, had no visitors. So if all this planning is starting to go on, nobody's planning anything with Lee Oswald. Mm -hmm. And the next day, he asked the neighbor guy how he got the job. He used to ride with the guy on Friday out to the suburbs and he'd stay with Marina and his two daughters on the weekend. He breaks pattern, asks the guy to bring him back to Marina on Thursday night. Mm. He shows up there unannounced on Thursday. And why is he there? Why is he there on a Thursday? Well, again, I I, I think I know. To say goodbye? I think you know, Phil. (laughs) There were two things he wanted. He wanted either to get his wife or his rifle, which was under a blanket in the in the in the Payne. It was the Payne family, their garage. Ruth Payne, his mm-hmm. his manager Carcano was under a blanket in that garage. Mm-hmm. And, and Marina knew where it was at as well. Right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. But the Paynes were not. Mm-hmm. Um, Ruth Payne and her husband both testified three times that night at dinner and afterwards. Oswald implored Marina to bring the daughters and come back with him. I'll find an apartment. I'll move out of my rooming house. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be a family again. And you know, Marina told him, well, yeah, I called there Tuesday night and you're living under an assumed name, the same old foolishness Lee. So she rejected him three times that night. Mm. Just turned his world upside down. Just probably the funny thing. Uh, Lee Oswald, the political animal, when when they were talking at dinner about Kennedy coming to visit the next, he did not engage in the conversation at all. So what does Oswald do the next morning before he leaves for work? He leaves his wedding ring and 
virtually his life savings. He leaves $170 and his wedding ring in a cup on Marina's dresser that leaves him with 13 bucks. Mm-hmm. He is next seen walking uh, over to the guy who had driven him home Thursday night. He's, it's his coworker. His name Leslie, Leslie or uh, Frazier. Ah, Frazier, thank you. So he's driving back with him on Friday, and Lee is carrying a long package, a very long package wrapped up in in, in you know packing paper. And mm-hmm. Wesley Buell Frazier, what's that, Lee? Oh, curtain rods for my apartment. Well, mm-hmm. Oswald's room and his rooming house had curtain rods. Yeah. Now, not only did Frazier see this package, but his sister standing in the kitchen window saw it. Oswald walks into the book book depository with it. For the first time ever, he walks ahead of Frazier. Other people see him carrying this. He disappears into the book depository, but he definitely, all witnesses all place him carrying a long package into the book depository. And it was not Mm -hmm. curtain rods. No curtain rods were ever found in the depository. But the Manlicker Carcano was. Mm-hmm. Folks, the linchpin here, when Marina hears the shots, she hears that they came from the book depository. She hears it on the TV. She excuses herself from Ruth Payne. They're, they're both in shock, obviously. Yeah. She goes to the garage, says a prayer, lifts the blanket. The rifle is gone. Mm-hmm. And she said to the Warren Commission, I knew right then that my husband, Lee Harvey Oswald, had assassinated JFK. Yeah. So I I wonder, there are various junctures. That's pretty pretty strong stuff there, guys. Yeah. It is. I I wonder if uh, Marina, what is her culpability? I mean, the government may have had no stomach for going after her for anything, but what she knew about this crime. That's her culpability for Walker, yeah. yeah well, Walker she and, was uh, afraid of him. He beat Lee Harvey Oswald. Beat her. He was a he was a domestic abuser. Uh huh. Yeah. A lot of loser assassin guys are. He beat her. <laughs> beat her. Uh, she didn't know much English. Uh, she's living in a strange country. She felt. Was- I think the paperwork was still ongoing at the time of the assassination. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I can answer that. Mm-hmm. Right. But. Well, let's look at, let's go to that motorcade. What about that motorcade? You know, when they turn uh, right toward the book, the book, uh, I almost said suppository. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that half the time. The book yeah. depository. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People along the motorcade route before the limo and the, and the motorcade gets there, they see a man standing in the sixth floor of the school book depository corner, uh, corner window with a gun. They assumed he was a Secret Service agent. Yeah. Ah. The shots ring out. Three of those witnesses look up, and one guy saw both the second and third shot. Mm-hmm. Another guy saw the third shot, and the last guy saw the rifle being drawn in. Mm-hmm. Three, three books upon depository workers, one floor below, fifth floor corner window. Hear the three shots immediately above them and hear the shells hit the floor above their heads. Yeah. Oswald, Oswald is seen 90 seconds later in the lunchroom. He had plenty of time to go down the stairs. Everybody is freaking out. Oh my God, the president's been shot. 
the only person who has no interest whatsoever in this shattering thing that occurred outside their workplace is Lee Harvey Oswald. Right. Yeah. A secretary says, did you hear what happened? The president's been shot right outside. Oswald grunts, says nothing, leaves the depository within three minutes. Yeah. You, you get the feeling he'd be one of these guys that would corner you in the office and probably talk to you about 45 oh, minutes Phil, about politics. If you Phil, Phil, if you were <laughs> at work and the most powerful man on the planet was just shot outside your workplace, wouldn't you stick around and discuss it with your coworkers? Oh, yeah, yeah. I might even want to know, you know, is there anything I can do to uh, help, you know, or what, you know, I might even... I like to say, JT likes to say, people can lie, but behavior never lies. He fled. He got on a bus. It got stalled in the traffic. Oswald then did something he had never done before. And you, you two know how I feel about a killer who does something unrelated to the crime, but that he's never done before. Mm-hmm. Cheapskate took a taxi back to his house. He had the driver drop him off two blocks away from the rooming house. Hmm. Walked back, took an evasive maneuver, went inside, changed his jacket, pants, got his revolver. Of course, he's left the Manlicker Carcano at the book depository. Here, Hmm. Here to me, you two, is the biggest mystery of all. At he shot Kennedy at 1230 at one he leaves his rooming house armed with his revolver and starts walking where, and he has $13 in his pocket to his name. Where is he going? That's funny. You should mention that. I read something on one of these sites and, and let's not get off on a tangent, but somebody said he was walking to Jack Ruby's. They didn't know each other. So, you know, Ruby at that time was in the, the office uh, of a newspaper placing ads for his nightclubs when he found out Kennedy was shot. Okay. Yeah. And we'll t- let's talk about Ruby. Let's not forget about him. I'm kind of moving this forward chronologically, but to me, if you say, JT, what's the biggest mystery here? Where was Oswald going? Some people said he was going in the direction of Edwin Walker's house. Mm-hmm. Maybe he had a list that day. Mm-hmm. And indeed, where, where Officer Tippett stops him, he is moving in a straight line between his rooming house and Walker's neighborhood when he stopped. That's interesting. I've never mm-hmm. heard that before. I know that I saw an aerial view of his, uh, you know, the daily yes. plaza all the way around the perimeter of the city. That and, was on my, my, my article on my website. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Phil, his movements line up perfectly well. He, Tippett was shot at about one twelve. Oswald walking at a fast pace puts him, he's 11 minutes away when he leaves at 101. It puts him exactly where Tippett was shot. And he fit the description that went out. You know, the people that saw Oswald in the window, Howard Brennan, first and foremost, described him. And he's walking really fast and Tippett pulls him over. Whatever Oswald says to him through the window doesn't suffice. Tippett gets out. Keeps his doesn't keep his eyes on Oswald. Oswald shoots him four times. Yeah, was there already? There was nothing released at that point. There no obviously no drawings or anything or any description of the assailant. White male, twenty to twenty five, dark hair, pale complexion, possibly short in stature. So most likely, whatever you know, whatever escalated that confrontation must have come from Oswald. 
the well, officer uh, would have been content to four, uh, four witnesses saw them speaking. Oswald came up and leaned on the passenger window. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll never know what was said. It didn't satisfy Tippett. He gets out, but the people that worked with Tippett said he always took his eyes off suspects. And four people saw Oswald fire the shots. Four others heard the shots and saw Oswald fleeing the scene. So I'd say about eight people, <coughs> excuse me, saw Lee Harvey Oswald either shoot this officer or running away with a gun in his hand. And all these people came forward immediately. And Phil, you saw that schematic of his movements. He starts moving toward the Texas theater. And he slips in and doesn't pay. He's suspicious. They converge. What did he yell when they converged on him? Well, it's all over now. He punched a cop and tried to shoot another one. Yeah. Why would he do that? Right. We, you know, because you, he already shot a cop. You always and the you, president you always talked of having a, a rope, like the that uh, like circumstantial evidence was like a rope where you can take away a strand, another strand, yeah. another strand, but you still have a tight rope. Strong rope. But you, you think about one man who was identified by ten people having shot Officer Tippett, being the same man that's strongly implicated in the in the murder Absolutely. of another you, you put those two things together there's a pretty compelling pieces of evidence pointing every, to that phil every every move he made since he since he left the depository is is a man in flight he he patiently gets off the bus because it's stalled and his his former landlady was on the bus and saw him he takes a cab but he doesn't have him drop him off by the rooming house hmm. uh, you know and he starts walking and, and he's suspicious and he's a su- suspicious in the theater. They arrest him. He violently resists arrest. He shouts something, right? He said, it's all over now. And he stands up and punches a cop. He gets his gun out, but they manage to get their finger on the hammer and they haul him out of there. And he's screaming police brutality. Mm-hmm. But why, why would an innocent man try to resist arrest like that. All you're doing is sitting in a movie theater. Aren't you kind of like, Hey, what's this about? What do you guys want? No, yeah. exactly what it was about. So I mean, it's painting a picture of a guilty man. <laughs> right around this time, the Manlicker Carcano is found in the sixth floor of the book depository, very near Oswald's own clipboard with three unfilled orders on it. So mm-hmm. he wasn't, he was up there, but he wasn't working. And yes, Phil, it was a, it was mistakenly identified as a Mauser. Yeah, and a lot it, of was made of that. A lot, a lot of Phil, if you look at the Phil, if you look at those two weapons, very similar, very easy to confuse them. You know that didn't stop. What's his name? Oh Jesus, Mark Lane. He wrote a whole chapter on the misidentification of the rival as, at the rifle as a Mauser. He wrote a whole chapter on that. They got it wrong. They corrected it. Nothing suspicious about it. The American people have a right to say, we cannot trust Earl Warren or the uh, other four Republicans or the two Southern Democrats who made up the commission, which the New York Times referred to as a politically well-balanced commission. Why did you say two Southern Democrats? Did you mean to insinuate something? Well, first, uh, what? Surely you understand. The racists. 
surely you understand that in the Democratic Party there's a split and that we ended up with a commission which the New York Times assured us was politically well-balanced, but in fact we had a commission which was made up of not a single Kennedy supporter. I think that raised the question at the outset in terms of faith. But I'd like to go beyond that you, because I think that faith is really... Not a single Kennedy supporter? No. Would you say that Warren was anti-Kennedy? Well, I don't know if he was anti-Kennedy. He was a Republican. He was a Republican governor, Republican attorney general. He was a Republican candidate for the, for the vice I'm president. Saying he's, but he's not a Kennedy supporter. Do you think that he would have preferred Nixon to Kennedy in 1960? Well, that's a question you'd have to put to him. I don't know what his politics yeah, are. But, at but, the but you're, you're apparently very much interested by this. Uh, this this, 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 is, this is the workings of your mind now. No. Two Southern Democrats and no Kennedy supporter. Well, don't you think equals that. Equals And indeed, the serial number and everything came back Oswald. He bought it mail order, he had it shipped to his P.O. box. He, he had an assumed identity, Alec Heidel. And when he was arrested, he had identification. That was both Lee Harvey Oswald, and he had identification as Alec Heidel. Alec Heidel is the guy who received the rifle. The writing on the application, the writing on the application matched Oswald's. Yeah, it's corrected that. I'm sorry. Are people still able to mail order a rifle under whatever name? Oh God, I hope not. Yeah. yeah, I hope not, Lisa. It's one of those the tales, like you talk about. You, you can this pick was Texas. This was Texas, nineteen sixty-three. Yeah, well, <laughs> okay. So in Texas today, you probably still can. You, just, you stop at the feed store and pick one. Yeah, up. you don't have to actually mail order that sucker. But it's one of those details that you you know, if you're cunning enough, or if you really want to make your point, you could you could take that point about the gun and you could exploit it. And build an entire case around it, or you can take something or, like or, the it, wound in his, in the president's throat, which is you know people debated on whether it was an entry or an exit wound in the back to the right, two inches to the right of the spinal column. The doctor Humes probed the wound with his fingertip and said the bullet went in a short distance and did not exit. Now that's the first contradiction. The doctors at Parkland Hospital who examined the wound there was a tracheotomy, but they performed it, and before they performed it, they examined it. And they said the wound in the throat was a clear puncture wound, an entrance wound. And each of the three doctors who made a public statement that day said the wound was clearly an entrance wound. Uh, yeah, but so Lane, all but I say <clears throat> is a sufficient uh, question on this point so that Earl Warren or, or anyone else who uh, wished to conduct a thorough investigation <clears throat> was compelled to examine the best evidence, the photographs and the x-rays. Well, look, I, I wish he had, and I, I hope that if he doesn't, somebody else will, and preferably before sundown tomorrow. But I also believe that the, the investigators of the Warren Commission uh, had every reason to suppose that the report of the autopsists uh, was, was legitimate. Uh, and that report of the autopsists took every conceivable hypothesis and opted for the one they reported uh, as the compelling well, one. we don't know that. Let's, let's talk about that real quick with Oswald being arrested. Now, you know, he was interrogated seven times that weekend before he was shot during the transfer. Mm. Never one time, never one time did he say, I was set up by another group. Now, he said something in the hallway that launched a thousand conspiracy theories. Mm. Maybe you guys have seen it. They're, they're, They're moving him through the hallway. And you guys have seen this footage. The hallways are choked with reporters. It's, yeah. it's insane down there at Dallas police yeah. headquarters. And he says, I'm just a patsy. And everybody jumped on that with both feet. But mm-hmm. what did he mean by that? Did he mean he was the, he was the stooge in the conspiracy? No. 
what he actually meant, as he explained, he thought he was being singled out because he had lived in the Soviet Union. That's uh-huh. what he meant. You know, there was a picture of him in the hallway with a clenched fist. I'm looking at my own PowerPoint right now. That is not the demeanor of an innocent, frightened man. The, 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 the clenched fist picture, I'm looking at it right now. Oswald and Custy, I'm a patsy. Did he ever claim that he had been set up by a conspiracy? And he told so many lies during that thing. They brought in, they brought in Buell Frazier and his sister. Well, they said you were carrying a long package uh, into the book depository. And Oswald says, no, I took my lunch. You're lying. And you're lying. These mm. people had no reason to lie. The people that saw him carried into the book depository, he just denied it. He just denied, denied, denied. Mm. They trapped well, him in so many lies. Oh, Well, to quote the, uh, the philosophical genius that is Shaggy, it wasn't me. A lie often enough and people believe it, right? Yeah, that's what that's what he was hanging his hat on. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, hanging know, on his genitals. They end up, yeah, they ended up managing mm-hmm. to put together. If you think about it, the Dallas police, what a job they mm-hmm. did. they solved JFK and Tippett within an hour of both crimes. They had the guilty mm-hmm. party arrested, and they kept offering him a lawyer. He he didn't want one. He would talk and then he would evade. He never blamed anyone else. He never said, I'm being unjustly held. He never screamed for his rights. And Marina said, when she visited him on Saturday, I knew he did it because he wasn't screaming that he's being railroaded and they're all against him. He was, he was proud of it. He was smirking the whole time, she said. Well, she but, knew um, how he would respond. She knew, you know, she knew him. So she. Let's she, um, hey, let's talk about Jack Ruby for a second. Now mm-hmm. I'm looking at my PowerPoint. Phil, I should have sent you this PowerPoint. It's great. This is from the class I teach. Here's a picture of Jack Ruby in the hallway, and this is right around the time of the famous picture where the guy's holding the rifle up in the air, walking through the reporters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This guy turns around, a balding, heavyset guy. And it's Jack Ruby. And they take Oswald within five feet of Jack Ruby. Mm -hmm. Now, if Ruby is supposed to kill Oswald, you kill him right then. How would Ruby ever know that he would get another chance? But he does not shoot Oswald. And he's in the press conference they do at midnight with Oswald. Ruby's there. He's standing on a table. Again, maybe the only opportunity the hitman Jack Ruby will get to take out Oswald and he doesn't do it. So do you don't think that maybe he was buoyed by the fact that he got so close to him earlier, went back to his, his nightclub and started thinking about it and saying, you know what? I can, I can do that again. If I just get my false. You know, Phil, the, the thought could have crossed his mind. Ruby always carried a gun because he, he carried large sums of money to pay his employees at his nightclubs. So but the thing about Jack Ruby, yeah, from, from the moment Jack Ruby heard about the assassination, he became a grieving avenger. People, his friends said he was distraught, tearful. How could this happen in Dallas? How could this little rat kill my president? And oh my God, Jackie Kennedy's going to have to come here for this rat's trial. 
I can't let that happen. And everybody that knew Jack Ruby that weekend, friends, employees, his strippers, said all he could talk about, how can I spare Jackie Kennedy from coming down here for that trial? Yeah. Yeah. Jack Ruby was a moronic, uh, loose cannon gate crasher. This guy always had to be where the action was. And his shooting of Oswald on Sunday morning is a perfect example of that. Let's let's look very quickly at what happened Sunday morning. See, see, this is the stuff that just blows me away that people don't know. They originally were going to transfer Oswald at 10 a.m. Most cops wanted to transfer him by cover of night. But the Dallas chief said, we've got to show the media that we're not mistreating him. They have mm-hmm. to be able to see him. The original trans- I'd be okay with a little mistreatment. I'm sorry. I'd be okay with a little mistreatment. Uh, he got punched at the he got punched at the movie theater, but that was about it. Okay. But the original transfer time is 10 a.m., which is stupid. I'm 10 sorry. But the Dallas Postmaster General, on his way to church drops his family off and instead of going to church he goes back to help with more interrogation this guy is interested in how oswald used an assumed name to have the rifle delivered to his p.o box Mm. this guy's the postmaster general so they they end up interrogating oswald for another hour if they do the transfer at 10 a.m as planned jack ruby is sitting in his apartment in his underwear Mm-hmm. Ruby gets two calls that morning and two calls only. His his cleaning lady, who said he, he was absolutely bizarre on the phone, and one of his strippers who needed money wired to her. Ruby gets leisurely dressed. It's it's like a quarter of ten. This is 45 minutes past the transfer time. His roommate said he leisurely showered. Hey, you kids, he took his dog with him. Mm. He's loved Dachshund Sheba. Everybody who knew Ruby said if he knew he was going to shoot Oswald and have to leave Sheba in the car, he never, ever would have taken Sheba. Sometimes right. cases are so simple. Where were the curtain rods? What about Jack Ruby's dog? Mm-hmm. If I say that to conspiracy people, they go, Jack Ruby's dog, what are you talking about? Curtain rods, what are you talking about? These little tiny things that show you the truth. But consider this, Ruby finally gets to the Western Union at 11.15. And right at 11, now the Western Union's on the same block as the Dallas City Jail. Can you believe that? Yeah. It's less than a football field away. same block same Uh side of the street ruby is waiting patiently in line to wire 25 dollars to his stripper the 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 western union guy said he wasn't in a hurry he wasn't agitated finally he sends the money he gets a stamped receipt it says 1117 it was found in his pocket Mm-hmm. He leaves the Western Union and he sees all the people gathered by the jail. As far as Ruby's knows, Oswald's been transferred. Yeah. I, I'm sure, and he said that, I assumed he'd been transferred. So he walks up to that ramp and they've got this giant armored car that they were going to take Oswald in. 
but they can't get it down the ramp because of a heating vent. So they have to bring it back up. And as the truck pulls out and the two cops step into the street to direct traffic, Jack Ruby just walks down the ramp. Mm-hmm. And he Ruby said he heard someone go, hey, you. And you could you can see this on the film of the Oswald transfer shooting. The first police come out and you see this wall of media. And suddenly, Phil, Lisa, it's uh-huh. suddenly Jack Ruby pops into the frame on the far right. He just got there. And 15 seconds later, Oswald comes out. Yeah. Now it gets worse because at 11.15, while Ruby's standing in line, they're ready to take Oswald. This just, this floors me, kids. And they go, Lee, you're wearing that dingy t-shirt. You want to change into something because you're going to be on TV. And Oswald says, get me my black sweater. If Oswald says, I don't care, just take me out of this t-shirt. He is transferred while Ruby is in line. Yeah. Western Union. This timetable is not disputable. Too much left the chance. Too much uh, contingent on, uh, like, I went and got wings tonight and 45 minutes. Mm. If I had planned something, you know, a tight schedule, I'd have missed it. (laughs) The Oswald shooting was, Ruby himself said after he was arrested, uh, this was a one in a million chance. I couldn't have had my timing any better than I had here. And Oswald came out, and you guys have seen the footage of this. He's working. Yeah. Yeah. And Ruby just, Ruby has a volcanic temper. Everyone knows it. He is a hinged, unbalanced guy. He just steps forward and pops him. Some Some professional assassin, if you look at the picture, he pulls the trigger with his middle finger, not his trigger finger. And he shoots him in the gut, not the head. And he him this is a hit man? I mean, come on. That's well, the whole thing, it, you know, with the fedoras and the cowboy hats and the rifles and the way that it, it looked like an episode of The Untouchables. I saw a still photo taken from the other angle so you can see Ruby's face. Uh-huh. If a hired killer, he just steps forward and shoots him. Ruby is screaming at Oswald, you killed my president, you rat fuck, or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Furiated by this guy. And Ruby definitely thinks, I'll be a hero. They arrest him and take him upstairs. And he's like, well, you're going to just book me and then let me go? Yeah. No, Jack. He thought he'd be back with his dog. Meanwhile, his beloved dachshund, Sheba, is in that car unlocked but with the windows up and they did find Sheba but the people that knew Jack Ruby said oh my god he never would have taken the dog it's not it's impossible not if he planned it it's impossible that he would have taken that dog if he knew he was going to shoot Oswald well, imagine but, how much of this would have been un, you know all this conjecture would have been unnecessary if Ruby had just taken his dog and gone home that day and, and Oswald had gone to trial. Here's what Lee Harvey Oswald wanted. If there's justice, Phil and Lisa, it's this. Oswald is a loser. He can't support himself. 
you know, he can't become a capitalist. He doesn't know how to even support himself, much less his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marina rejects him. Okay, I'm done. Wedding ring, all my money, here it is. Oswald assumed he would go to trial where he would have a platform to pontificate on Marxism and socialism. He would be convicted. He would be probably sentenced to death, but they wouldn't execute him right away. And people from all over the world would come and see him and talk to him. And he could spin conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory. Oswald would have loved this. And he would have been taken care of. He'd have had a cot, three hots, and a place to squat. And he would have mm-hmm. held court with the world's media. And Jack Ruby took that away from him. Probably had more girlfriends than he ever dreamed of. Yeah. I mean, if this is a conspiracy, <laughs> Phil, Phil, if this is a conspiracy, why do you kill one conspirator while delivering another one to be captured immediately? Why would you do that? Well, we need to get rid of this conspirator and we'll give him this one. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous. So that kind of brings us up chronologically. Do you want to talk about some loose ends? I do, sure. but I want to talk. I want to make sure to talk a little bit about the Warren Commission, too, because that's that's obviously plays into the the canon of the whole thing. The, you know, Earl Warren led the commission with the former president. The Warren Commission, the official government investigation into the death of the president, concluded that despite the conspiracy theories, Oswald did indeed act alone. It was a conclusion that the then last surviving member of the commission, former President Gerald Ford, supported decades later. Here's what he told me in 1999. There were seven of us at the insistence of President Johnson. We came up with what I think are two very important decisions. Number one, that Lee Harvey Oswald committed the assassination. And secondly, the Warren Commission decided that we found no evidence of a conspiracy, foreign or domestic. I have seen no new evidence in the 30-some years that have transpired between Kennedy's assassination and today, no new evidence that would change my mind. It's an astounding investigation in its scope. Absolutely astounding. And LBJ wanted it done before the 64 presidential elections. He didn't want that to be a factor in the election. And Arlen Specter was integral to it. Some people point to the fact that there were some things modified. You know, I don't know, Gerald Ford may have changed some descriptions of the throat wound or something in the documents. And, you know, well, the, the throat wound was an exit wound. They did a tracheotomy on, on him at the hospital. That's mm-hmm. why the wound was enlarged. Phil, there's a simple explanation for every single thing. Let's talk about the magic bullet, huh? Yeah. What about that thing? <laughs> He spit on us. <laughs> and I screamed out, I'm it! Then I turned and the spit ricocheted off him and it hit me. Wow, what a story. Yeah. Unfortunately, the immutable laws of physics contradict the whole premise of your account. Allow me to reconstruct this, if I may, for Miss Bennis, as I've heard this story a number of times. 
Newman, Kramer, if you'll indulge me. According to your story, Hernandez passes you and starts walking up the ramp. Mm -hmm. Then you say you were struck on the right temple. The spit then proceeds to ricochet off the temple, striking Newman between the third and the fourth rib. The spit then came off the rib, made a right turn, hitting Newman in the right wrist, causing him to drop his baseball cap. The spit then splashed off the wrist, pauses in midair, mind you, makes a left turn, and lands on Newman's left thigh. That is one magic loogie. That's well, my, my friend, when he knew I was going to have you on to talk about this, he said, no way, seven wounds from three shots. Impossible, he said. Oh, it's, it's, it's so possible, it's not even funny. First off, most people don't realize this. Oswald fired the first shot right as the limo turned the corner, and he missed completely, and it hit, um, it hit a tree or a, or, a, or a light stanchion. And then it ricocheted. And a part of a piece of pavement hit a guy standing under the triple overpass. Okay. That's the first bullet. That's when the clock starts. The six seconds in Dallas? No. How about 10? There was quite a delay between that first shot that missed and the second shot. Mm-hmm. Now, once again, a very simple fact explains it. Governor Connolly was not sitting directly in front of JFK. He was on the limo jump seat. He was eight inches inside of Kennedy, and he was four inches lower. And if you look at any picture of them sitting there, you can see it. He's he's at an angle, and he's lower. And that the trajectory of the shot, Phil and Lisa, matches mm-hmm. up perfectly. I've got a schematic I use in my in my talk. It matches up perfectly. And if you look at the if you look at the Zapruder film, which is really the Holy Grail, Connolly reacts immediately when Kennedy does. I mean, his his reaction is almost immediate. You know, mm-hmm. Kennedy grabs his throat, and and Connolly, his shoulder and his arm and his thigh, he starts to turn. It's almost simultaneous. So the magic bullet wasn't magic at all. It traveled in a straight line. It hit two guys who weren't seated directly in front of each other. How did people not know this? That's what amazes me, that people don't know this. And here's the other thing, Phil. What about when Kennedy's head snapped back from that third fatal shot? Well, the head go back and to the left, back and to the left. Why did that happen? I think I know that one too, but I'll let you say. Once again. Just a simple forgotten fact, Kennedy had Addison's disease. He always wore a back brace. The back brace was supposed to keep him upright and prevent him from falling forward. So the brace did, if you see the headshot, he starts to move forward, and then he goes back into the side. Uh, Right? He goes forward a little, and he goes back into the side. The bullet hits his skull and fragment 
you know, any shot from the grassy knoll from that angle probably would have hit Jackie as well. No one ever thinks about that, do they? Her head was right next to his. Yeah. But 313 or something like that that shows the exact hit. I think it was 313. I got my PowerPoint up, but I I went past that part. Yep, 313. Oh, a horrible frame of Zapruder film. There's just a sea of red coming out the front of Kennedy's head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sea of red and blood tissue and brain is coming out the front of his head. The bullet went in the back, small entry wound, large exit wound. But if he's not wearing that back brace, consider this. If he's not wearing the back brace, the first shot in his upper back that exits his throat probably puts him on the floor of the limo. It's very possibly a survivable wound. Right. And there, there's no headshot mm-hmm. without that brace. And I, again, I, I'm astounded the people that study this thing, they don't understand these simple facts that explain just about everything. You, you know, I mean, people just don't seem to know about this stuff. They know about they know about the rifle being misidentified as a Mauser, but they don't know about Edwin Walker. They don't know about the back brace. They don't know about Jack Ruby's dog. They don't know about the curtain rods. You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very compelling. What other loose ends do we have here? Well, I mean, you could go, I mean, you really could could go on and on. You could speculate about whether or not uh, Castro was behind it. And this individual may reporting or let me, let me throw you guys a bone here. Mm -hmm. Oswald tried to go to the Russian embassy in Mexico in October. Uh Uh-huh. Remember he tried to go back. He he did. They didn't want anything to do with him. The the KGB, the KGB guys weren't stupid. Um, okay. He never got in to see him. Then he tries to go to the Cuban embassy and they also turn him away. I would say if there's any possible influence Oswald has, maybe some lower echelon Cubans at the embassy could have said, hey, if Kennedy ever comes to Dallas, you know, maybe you could shoot him. Mm-hmm. Now, there were no plans for Kennedy to come to Dallas when Oswald was outside the Cuban embassy. That is the only possible conspiracy that we have because Oswald was just nuts about this Cuba thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He cared about the most. He was with the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Right. He was on television promoting that. He panned out. He was a part of the some street. Of Ca- some of Castro's underlings might have suggested something to him. But since Kennedy is not scheduled yet to be in Dallas, we don't have a motorcade route. Oswald's not even working at the book depository then. It was just be a general like, hey, man, that would be something you could do. Like if Castro was Don Corleone, these guys would be like street hoods or something. (laughs) uh, Fidel Castro would have never, ever sanctioned the shooting of JFK. Mm. wouldn't have done it he knew if he'd have been involved would come right back on it castro was not stupid well yeah. let me ask you this when they released the documents in 2017 that were largely redacted one of this one of the few things that our previous authors identified as significant was that it proved that oswald had been working with the cia because he had a cia number have you heard that no 
Okay. Well, I guess that's it. <laughs> I mean, so you don't give that any credence. That, How you know, is he working with the CIA? He's working at a book depository. He's living in a rooming house. He has no phone. He has no car. There's no email. There's no text messages. We've got, we've got two days to plan this thing now. Right. And, and when does he have time to be a CIA guy? His landlady was very clear. He'd been in that rooming house since September. He never went out at night. He never received any calls. The only calls he made were to Marina. Right. And if you've ever seen his room in that rooming house, it was a former walk-in closet. So this is like, no, okay. Yes, okay. I'm just going to have to say here, JT, his landlady who also worked for the government. He <laughs> <laughs> did? Just throwing that in for the conspiracy theorists. Oh, oh, okay. I, I, I know of no evidence of that, but yeah, I mean, Oswald, why, Oswald wasn't meeting with people. How, where was the CIA training him? People know Oswald lived in New Orleans for a bit in 63. They have dissected where he lived and his movements. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know. So people suggest that he met, I guess that he met, wasn't Jim Garrison in New Orleans? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I can tell you're a big fan. Jim Garrison. <laughs> what, what, what that guy did to Clay Shaw with no evidence at all. That is the, one of the most excessive overreaches of jurisprudence I've ever studied. And anyone that examines that trial in that case would agree with me. 67. The first arrest has been made in the investigation of the New Orleans District Attorney's Office into the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Arrested this evening in the District Attorney's Office was Clay Shaw, age 54, of 1313 Dauphine Street, New Orleans, Louisiana. Mr. Shaw will be charged with participation in a conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy. It should be pointed out, however, that the nature of this case is not conducive to an immediate succession of arrests at this time. However, other arrests will be made at a later date. This is District Attorney Jim Garrison, official press release. The situation speaks for itself. We made an arrest. There will be more arrests. And, uh... I have no doubts whatsoever about the case. I said this some time ago, and I meant it. And uh, when I say there will be other arrests, I mean that, and they will stand up. Has Mr. Shaw professed his innocence? Uh, no comment about that. I don't want to comment in any way on Mr. Shaw, because uh, I want to lean over backwards, uh, not to... Uh, mm. yeah. That jury was out for, what, 30 minutes before they acquitted Shaw of that ridiculous show trial. Right. Jim Garrison was a pedophile. He was not Kevin Costner. Okay. Well, and that was probably the biggest disservice hey, of that whole movie. Gonna, oh my God. Like Kevin Costner. Well, Maybe it, there's a reason. The biggest disservice of that whole movie is the way they lifted this Jim Garrison up. To Absolutely, be, Phil. Uh, Jim Garrison was a nasty guy. He was. He was. A, he was definitely a sociopath. He was a child molester. Yeah, I can't say enough bad things about Jim Garrison. Yeah, you know, but there, there's just no evidence. We could sit here all night and let's not. And right. <laughs> here's what the conspiracy people do. I had a guy once say to me, "Well, you know, Oswald signed some hotel register in North Dakota the day after the assassination." And I'm like, "Yeah, somebody signed his name." And the the thing with the conspiracy movement does they magnify every tiny little discrepancy 
like it's like it's freaking you know the end of the world but as 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 vincent bugliosi says in his book none of these little details go anywhere they just lay there they don't connect to anything you can you can nitpick them and look at them you know there's always going to be loose ends you can't explain but none of this stuff goes anywhere if you look at it there's no credible evidence that the cia or mob or any of these groups was involved in the assassination nothing i told the jury in london i said you know folks i'll stipulate that three people can keep a secret i said but only if two are dead and here we have a situation where close to 44 years later, not one word, not one syllable has leaked out. Why? Because there's nothing to leak out. Let's take it a step further. Once Oswald shot Kennedy in Dealey Plaza and left the book depository building, one of two things would have happened. The most likely thing by far, if the CIA or mob got him to kill Oswald for them, you know there would have been a car waiting for him to drive him to his death. You know that would have happened. And yet Oswald's out on the street with $13 in his pocket trying to flag down buses and cabs. That fact alone shows you there was no conspiracy. But, yeah, I agree with you. It would be a waste of time to start trying to say, well, this one is more legitimate than the other in, in a way. I mean, the point is that, you know, it, it, you, you can't follow every single angle. And when you break it down to the, you know, the fundamental issues that you're talking about, you know, the fundamental uh, points of circumstantial evidence. Hey, hey, I got, I got, I got one more loose end, Phil, that we should address. Oh, I'll let you do that. I also wanted to say that the age of television, and when you listen to the recounts of the assassination as it happened, these seeds of conspiracy were take were being formed by the commentators. At the time, at the oh, sure. very beginning of the whole thing, they were sure. talking about, well, the shot came from here, shot came from there, nobody knows. And this, but anyway, I just want to interject that because this is like Kennedy was the original television president. Yeah. And it's almost like new money. It's like mm-hmm. he, they were exploiting the media for, for everything they could get. It, it could be, you know, 90% of the people in Dealey Plaza heard three shots. There, there's never been any evidence that any more. Shots were fired. No shots were heard. No ammo was found. No spent slugs were found. They never found that first bullet that he fired right around the corner. You know, it's funny when you look at the Zapruder film, you can see both Connolly and Jackie react to that first shot. And most people thought it was a firecracker. By the time the second and third shots rang out, people knew what they were. But one more loose end, and then maybe we should we should probably cut this off because I could go past midnight. The photographs of Jack, the photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald holding the rifle that killed Kennedy and the revolver that killed Tippett. People have gone over those photos. Oh, they were faked. They were faked. Look at those photos. The shadows are moving the wrong way. Oswald standing all slanted. It's impossible for a man to stand in the position he was. I've heard that. You know, on my PowerPoint, I have a picture of me in my baseball uniform when I was 12 in the backyard and I'm standing the exact same slant as Oswald is. (laughs) I'm looking right at it, but um, Mm -hmm. there's been entire books written about those photos, but here's the thing. Marina said time and time again, I took them. Oswald signed the back of one of them to his daughter, Junie. It said Mm -hmm. Junie from Papa. He signed the back of it. 
And the photo experts have gone over those things time and time again. There was no doctoring of those photos, none. So none of it goes anywhere. And I'm sure, I wonder how people are going to react to this, to this cast, because some people just have to have a conspiracy here. And I was one of them. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to tell you people out there, I was, I was where you were. People will get violently angry with you. (laughs) they really do it's like i've uh, it's like i've questioned the bible or something yeah you know at at its heart this was really such a simple crime he breaks pattern he goes out to see his wife on thursday his wife's there his rifle's there i tell you for for a fact if marina had not called on tuesday she asked for lee harvey oswald at the rooming house we don't have anybody by that name. Well, who do you got? We've got O.H. Lee. Marina was furious. She said, I was going to go back with him. I just wanted him to suffer a bit. If she had gone, if she had agreed on that Thursday night to, to bring the kids on Saturday and look for an apartment, Oswald does not shoot JFK. It doesn't happen. That is as simple as it gets. And that's all I have. I think we had a great episode here. Yeah. Well, I've gotten in some debates with some folks and uh, they just mm-hmm. keep going, well, what about this thing? What about this thing? And I explain it and they just, they just try to pick on these little, these little threads. Yeah. You know, they just pull at these little threads. I mean, if Oswald were alive, he wouldn't want anybody taking credit for this but himself. Right. Seriously. He'd be rolling in his grave if he knew that people thought he was an innocent patsy. That's not what this man wanted at all. Do you want to promote anything? Do you have a... Just just people go to my web... Oh, people should go to my website and read my full article, The JFK Assassination Case Still Closed. I I want people to really study this evidence. It's important to me. One fact is worth a thousand theories. Look at the facts. This was a very simple assassination by a guy who fit the profile of an assassin, just like every presidential assassin in history has done, maybe with the exception of John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, people really need to take a look at it. If I can go, if I can change my mind, you can change yours. So thanks. You guys have been great. Yeah, yeah you enjoyed too, it baby. as always. Wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. The path we have chosen for the present is full of hazards, as all paths are. But it is the one most consistent with our character and courage as a nation and our commitments around the world. The cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds 
or political preference. And where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. Hey, listeners, it's Lisa and Phil from Yeah, Uh-Huh. How are we doing? We love feedback. Please use our socials to let us know what you think. We have social. Twitter. Yeah, Uh-Huh Pod. Instagram. Yeah, Uh-Huh Pod. Facebook. Yeah, Uh-Huh Pod. Notice, Notice a pattern. pattern. Website. www.yeah-uh-huh.com. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week.